Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We are your hosts, James and Anthony. This episode will be on Star Wars Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. James and I are very excited to get into Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, the second episode of our Star Wars Marathon. Every Monday, we're going with the original trilogy, episodes four, five, and six. We're doing every single Monday. We just did the A New, A New Hope. Hope last week. We'll be doing uh, The Return of the Jedi next week, but today is The Empire Strikes Back, episode five. It came out in 1980. This one was directed by Irvin Kershner, written by Lee Brackett and Lawrence Kasdan, story by George Lucas. It captured just one Oscar, best sound, as well as special achievement honor for visual effects. On IMDb, it is an 8.7 out of 1.3 million ratings. On Rotten Tomatoes, it is a 94% fresh from critics, 97% fresh from audience. Metacritic has it at an 82%. And just a quick synopsis of the second film in this trilogy— After the destruction of the Death Star, Darth Vader and the Empire are on the hunt for the Rebels throughout the entire galaxy who are brutally overpowered by the Empire on the ice planet Hoth. Our hero, Luke Skywalker, begins his Jedi training with Master Yoda by orders of Obi-Wan Kenobi, while Han Solo and Leia are pursued across the galaxy by Darth Vader and bounty hunter Boba Fett. All right. Is this the highest rated on IMDb? I'm not out of the sure. Entire I, I, Star Wars I can, saga. I can check. Let me see. I think it might. I think it might be considered the most popular favorite for Star Wars fans to say Empire's the favorite. I think it might be the most common po- favorite one, like how Shawshank. Yeah, most. Strikes Back is eight point seven. Actually, A New Hope is eight, yeah eight point six. A New Hope. Uh-huh. Then Return of the Jedi is eight point three. Wow, well, returns that low. That's interesting. Correct. I think it's really great. And I, I really think Empire's fantastic. It's a great step up from the first film. And what it really brings to the table that A New Hope didn't have because Lucas was so restricted and just had so little resources and money to work with, the pacing of this film is is exceptional. The set design, the production, the locations. I mean, he had money and a real crew to work with this time. And although Lucas isn't the director, uh, I read um, interviews with uh, Irvin Kirshner saying that, like, Lucas was, like, over his shoulder the whole time. He's basically, like, yeah. showrunner of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And because um, the, the visual effects in this film were so much more extravagant, I think Lucas didn't have time to focus on the day-to-day. And he also had a he also hired a producer to help handle the day-to-day with Irvin Kirshner, which actually didn't end up, end up working out. And I read that the producer he hired, I can't remember the name of the producer, but he was messing it up. And so Lucas literally had to step in. He actually did direct some of the sequences you'll see in this film. But I think it was smart of him to be like, I need uh, an, accomp- an experienced seasoned veteran director, Irvin Kirshner, who had made had been making movies for years to basically take the reins of this project while I oversee the entire thing. So I thought it was smart of him. And I think a great decision was hiring Lawrence Kasdan to help write the screen, screenplay because um, Lee, the original writer, she, they actually passed away before this film ever went to, into production. And Lawrence Kasdan, his first credit as a screenwriter is this movie, which is absurd. Empire Strikes Back is your first writing credit as a, as a screenwriter, which is wild. He's actually become a very successful writer and director. He's directed a bunch of westerns, and written them, but he also he wrote the first script. He wrote the, the script for Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know how Lucas and him got into connection with one another because he didn't have any credits before this. But Lucas actually hired Lawrence Kasdan to write 
Raiders of the Lost Ark because he was also working on that story after A New Hope. And then he liked Lawrence Kasdan's draft of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then he tapped him to write this script based upon Lucas had obviously the story and the characters and everything. But he needed help with the actual screenplay, the dialogue. So Lawrence Kasdan brought that. And I think the screenplay is really strong. The pacing, like I said, is wonderful. The characters get a lot more development, especially Vader. I think that from start to finish, this is kind of like a breakneck pace. There's no really long scenes, and I think it's just like a really perfect from start to finish story. This episode is going to feature a movie poster giveaway. All you have to do to enter this contest is share any of our episodes in your Instagram story, whether it's from YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever. Share it in your Instagram story and tag us at Raiders of the Lost Podcast in the story. We'll keep track of everyone who enters the contest, and you'll get a free poster from MoviePosters.com if you win the contest. So share any one of our episodes, whether it's the Star Wars ones or not anyone, into your Instagram stories, and you'll be entered into the contest. Don't forget to tag us in the story as well. Back to Irvin Kershner real quick. He was selected as director for this film by George Lucas because we all know George Lucas suffered from so much exhaustion and was... A wreck after A New Hope that took so much out of him. And directing these movies, it's literally like a two and a half year sentence making a Star Wars film. Everything that goes into a pre-production, post-production, and filming-wise, it's insane. It's a huge toll. So he gave the reins to someone else, Irvin Kershner, who wasn't like a super well-known director at the time. He wasn't like the hottest guy. He could have had like Coppola, Spielberg, one of his friends do it. Instead, he chose Kirshner, who actually taught at USC. He gave lectures at USC for film and was a mentor to George Lucas. So George Lucas chose him because, you know, he knows everything about film and he's everything about film except Hollywood. So he wanted someone that could just do a solid job at directing, which he did, and he was a big fan of his as well. And writing the development of this movie took a long time to write just like the original did and it took a lot of drafts to get there now i have a little info on the development of i love info the empire strikes back so lucas began formulating ideas in 1977 these included the emperor how to explain facial injuries hamill suffered from an accident after filming star wars and lucas told him that had he died his character would have been replaced not recast and luke's lost citrus so we'll get to that in a little bit how mark hamill suffered a horrible motorcycle accident in real life and they had to explain that in the films with his reconstructive surgery in real life hamill recounted being told the sister character might be leia which he found disappointing lucas had written star wars but did not enjoy developing the lore for the original universe science fiction writer lee brackett whom lucas met through a friend excelled in quick paced dialogue compared to lucas he hired her for fifty thousand dollars aware that she had cancer Answer. Like Anthony said, she passed away before the movie was released. Between November 28th and December 2nd, 1977, Lucas and Brackett held a story conference. Lucas had core ideas in mind, but he wanted Brackett to piece them together. He envisioned one central plot complemented by three main subplots set across 60 scenes, 100 script pages, and a two-hour runtime. They formed a general outline and ideas that included the Wookiee homeworld, new alien species, the Galactic Emperor, a gambler from Han's past, water and city planets, Luke's lost twin sister, and a diminutive frog-like creature, Munich Yoda. Lucas drew on influences including The Thing from Another World, the novel Dune, obviously, Flash Gordon, and around this time, Kurtz conceived the title The Empire Strikes Back. He said they avoided calling it Star Wars 2 because films with two in their titles were seen as inferior at the time. Getting a lot of this information from StarWarsFandom.com. 
Brackett completed her first draft in February 1978, the titled Star Wars sequel from the adventures of Luke Skywalker. The draft contained a city in the clouds, a chase through an asteroid belt, a greater focus on the love triangle between Luke, Han, and Leia, which was portrayed as a damsel in distress, more in the screenplays, the Battle of Hoth, and a climactic battle between Luke and Darth Vader. The ghosts of his father and Obi-Wan visit Luke, leaving Vader a separate character. The draft revealed Luke had a sister. It was not Leia at the time. Han goes on a mission to recruit his powerful stepfather, and Lando is a clone from the Clone Wars. Lucas made detailed notes and attempted to contact Brackett, but she had been hospitalized and died of cancer a few weeks later in March, 19, March 18th. The strict schedule left Lucas no choice but to rewrite the second draft himself. Though Brackett's draft focused, followed Lucas's outline, he found that she had portrayed the characters different, differently than he had originally intended in his film. Lucas completed his handwritten 121-page draft six weeks later on April 1st. He found the process more enjoyable than Star Wars because he was familiar with the universe, but struggled to write a satisfying conclusion, leaving it open for a third film. This draft established Luke's sister as a new character undertaking a similar journey, Vader's castle and his fear of the Emperor, distinct power levels in controlling the Force, Yoda's unconventional speech pattern, and bounty hunters including Boba Fett. Lucas wrote Fett like the man with no name, Clint Eastwood obviously, combining him with an abandoned idea for a stormtrooper. Although Lucas's handwritten draft included mention of Vader being Luke's father, the typed script omitted this revelation because George Lucas wanted to avoid script leaks about this huge piece of information. Lucas included elements such as Han's debt to Jabba and recontextualized Luke leaving Dagobah to rescue his friends. In Brackett's draft, Oberon instructs Luke to leave. Lucas had Luke choose to leave. He also removed a scene of Luke massacring stormtroopers to convey him falling to the dark side, wanting to instead explore this in the next film. Lucas believed it was important the characters were inspirational and appropriate for children. Lucas's type draft is titled Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. In 1978, impressed with his work on Raiders of the Lost Ark, like Andy said earlier, Lucas hired Lawrence Kasdan to refine the draft. Kasdan was paid $60,000 in early July. Kasdan, Kirshner, and Lucas held a story conference to discuss the Lucas draft. The group collaborated on the ideas, challenging Lucas when he made no sense. When his made no sense, Lucas embraced their ideas, and that was the final script. And we moved on. It's so interesting to hear all the elements that were not planned at all after he wrote the first film. It's interesting because Darth Vader, it, he was supposed to be a separate entity, and Anakin Skywalker was supposed to be... Uh, passed away and a force ghost in his original vision also having the twin sister as a separate st entity and not leia uh but i think those twists really uh, th those twists and reveals really make the the film special especially return of the jedi when we learn about leia and then in this film it's got one of the greatest twists of all time with Darth Vader revealing to Luke that he's his father. Spoiler warning. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> and so i really like the elements of them taking those seeds of ideas and then injecting it into the established lore and characters we had already seen. So uh, it's it's fascinating to hear the writing process of beloved films to see how different they were uh, when they were first uh, imagined by the writers and, and filmmakers. And what I guess what what makes this film so different from A New Hope is the collaboration is the collaborating with the other artists to really craft a story that was the best it could possibly be. And something that would make it really special and set it apart from A New Hope. And that I think another great collaborator that Lucas hired was the cinematographer. His name's Peter Shoshitsky. 
this is David Cronenberg, cinematographer. So he's done all of Cronenberg's fil uh, films as well as a bunch of other films. But I think the cinematography of this movie is really, really fantastic. The best of the entire series, I would say. Great color palette, shooting uh, anamorphic, uh, the great use of the set design locations. And Chasisky really brought an element of artistry and dynamic imagery that wasn't in the first film. And you can immediately think of like the Hoth battle, the beautiful lighting of Vader versus, versus Luke silhouetted with that blue and orange. And also the, the, cry, the what do you call it when Hoth's carbonite. carbonite scene, that contrast of colors, these, these great lighting techniques that weren't used in the first film because it, the cinematography is great, but it wasn't like highly stylized. And this film, uh, the, the Dagobah sequences with all that smoke and mist and the beautiful lighting. I think it's really it really set itself apart from A New Hope in terms of the the creativity in the filmmaking and hiring this new DP really set the stage for them to make this really epic in scale and grand in visuals. Cinematography is definitely a strength to this film. More strengths include a more serious shift in tone. It becomes darker. It actually starts to feel like we're in a war. The first one is great. It's so fun, action-packed. But we actually have our first ground battles in this, which is really interesting and fun at the same time. Luke stands out as the clear hero in this film for the entire trilogy, entire franchise going forward. Although they kind of abandoned that. Um, <laughs> what they could have done. But he stands out as this is his hero's journey. Um, it's probably the most important of the franchise. It really feels like the heart of the trilogy. It sets up the emotional stakes between Luke and Vader. Also Han, Han Solo and Leia as well. The budget's much bigger. Bigger visual effects. Bigger sets. Bigger props. Everything's just so much bigger and better. And better. visual effects are phenomenal. Bigger, in this film. better. We have more Vader. We get to empathize a little bit with Vader, despite seeing him murk a bunch of people with throat ch throat chokes in this film and force chokes in this movie. But we understand what his perspective and his beliefs, as well as is there a little bit of humanity stuck inside of there? We see a little bit of that. We also get to see the back of his head. We get to see what's under the mask, yeah. and we get a little tease of this scarred, pale head. And you're like, oh my god, what is that guy? Who is he? <laughs> so he's not. I think maybe when audiences saw the first one, maybe they thought Vader was a robot, or even just a normal guy. Yeah, or or, or like I think it, I think many people might have thought he was a cyborg of some kind because you don't see any kind of humanity. And so seeing that it's actually a person under that helmet was so important. And I think that the character development of Vader, also not being the big bad in this, we learn that there is a superior to Vader, and he's following orders. He has a master. I thought that was a great touch to the character. Exactly. We have Palpatine and Yoda are both introduced in this film, which are such integral characters to this franchise. We have more locations, bigger sets, more planets. We're not in the desert for half the movie because of budget restrictions, but we're all over the place. Elaborate sets, elaborate design production-wise, the cloud and the, the city and the sky and the clouds and everything like that. Luke's training is such a great sequence in this film, him with Yoda. The dark side, we get to learn more about these thematic elements of fear and hate and how somebody can be corrupted by the dark side and how Luke has to avoid succumbing to fear and hate to try to prevent being enticed by the dark side. We have the complete loss of hope where at the end of this film, our characters have lost everything. We've lost Han. He's frozen in carbonite. The Empire seems stronger than ever. They destroyed them on Hoth. They're, they're losing their bases. So it seems like there's a loss of hope. Luke lost his goddamn hand. So lots... <laughs> Lots of loss at the end of this film. Han and Leia's explored more, which is great. And greater cinematic moments in this film, like the Luke and 
Vader battle is very emotional, very intense. Probably the most important scene and sequence in the entire franchise of Star Wars is them two fighting than the revelation of him being Luke's father. So much more emotional cinematic impact. And this is it's a great point showing how how important this film was to the franchise because if it if the film wasn't good, Star Wars might not have become what it is today. It could have been maybe just like a dwindling franchise if the second one was so inferior to the first one. And so it was important that they nailed this one. And like all the things you just said, I think it's just a really fantastic setup for the rest of the series. And and the film opens so well with very little dialogue. And it's that, you know, that droid falling into the ice planet. And then we get the sequence of Luke being attacked by the abominable snowman (laughs) and then Han saving him. But there's very little dialogue and we get the establishment of, you know, he, he, Leia, and, and Han are are working with the rebels, and they have positions of power. Even Han is a superior to a lot of officers. So I love these this setup of the first like twenty minutes of this film. It's really terrific. We get to see lightsaber use. We get to see some force powers, and it's really well photographed, really well framed. Uh, some of the ice landscape photography is really stunning, and also, I mean, we get these great helicopter shots moving through the mountains that Lucas combined with the the ships flying through, searching for them. Just the production value went through the roof. And I'm sure when audiences, I mean, because obviously the space sequences are so cool and they look amazing on screen. But when you do that same kind of effect on top of a background that is especially very bright, well, well lit in, in white and color and, it's hard to make it look as good as it does in space with that empty background. And so I think it was extremely challenging. That entire sequence, fighting the walkers, it still holds up today. It looks awesome. But that was like many people not, might not realize how much more difficult it is to to do that effect, which is so much easier in space because you have the black background. I said in, we were talking about in the New Hope episode, you can kind of like get you, you can pay, make people not see the errors and the little idiosyncrasies that might show up because of the empty background. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. But when you have a moving landscape and then a flying ship on that, that makes the special effect is so much more difficult to pull off and to make it look good and believable. So I think the first the first 30 minutes of this film is so impressive and really sets the stage for the rest of the film and gets audiences just injected with excitement in anticipation for the rest of the story. Yeah, Lucas and the filmmakers had so much more to work with, so the budget was actually increased to $18 million on this film. It had a box office of $583 million. And in order to avoid sharing creative rights, George Lucas decided to avoid using a major studio and finance the entire movie of The Empire Strikes Back on his own. He bankrolled all $18 million into the production himself, with a combination of his profits from Star Wars and a bank loan. Although the move was risky, it pulled off, paid off several times over. Obviously, he's made so much money <laughs> off these movies. <laughs> and then he showed gratitude. He he shared his 
profits with the employees of all the production and share the shared nearly five million dollars in bonuses with everyone involved with the film and according to lucas to empire magazine at first i was contemplating selling the whole thing to fox i just take my percentage and go home and never think about star wars again but the truth of it is I got captivated by the thing, and I can't help but get upset or excited when something isn't the way it's supposed to be. I can see the world. I know the way the characters live and breathe. I wonder how he feels about the new trilogy. The movie premiered at a limited number of theaters, though, in those in large metropolitan areas only because it was originally released in 70mm film projection format, which was just preposterous because these projectors are massive and it wasn't that common in a lot of theaters. So it was only released in those theaters. But after a few weeks, it was eventually released to standard 35 millimeter projectors and film for theaters all across North America and around the world. And then on top of all the elements we discussed, what really makes this film special is the music. And I think this is the best score in the Star Wars franchise by John Williams because not only do we get the themes we in the music we already heard in the first film that we love but we get a couple of my favorite themes we get the imperial march darth vader's theme is not played in the first film and it, it's 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 so ironic because it's such a a famous uh, piece of music that you associate with star wars but it's pretty pretty amazing to think that it's not even in the first movie you don't you you think it is i think mandela effect people yeah. think when he's coming aboard princess leia's ship yeah. they think the imperial march is playing but it's not but it's not so this is the first time we ever hear the imperial march which is just fabulous it's the, a perfect theme for the villain and so recognizable i think it's one of the most probably famous pieces of music made in the last hundred years and then also we get yoda's theme which i think is really fantastic i think it's so beautiful it suits the character so well with the playfulness that he is mixed with the experience and wisdom he has williams somehow managed to put all these elements of the character into the music where you have these playful tones and then we have these sweeping strings and incredibly large landscape that he worked with for the canvas of the of the piece and i think yoda's theme is definitely one of my favorites in the entire star wars series and then we get obviously luke's theme leia's theme uh, han doesn't have a theme in any of the original movies but he made luke williams made one for the han solo movie that's the first time we hear han solo's theme but i think adding these new legendary themes really captivated audiences with what they were listening while they were watching the film. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's the most popular song in the last hundred years. I probably Baby Sharks above it. <laughs> <laughs> baby Shark, do, 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 do. Baby Shark. <laughs> I hate that. Song. I hate it. I hate it. Now, <laughs> something that George Lucas did that I don't think we actually didn't touch on last episode with Star Wars, the first one, A New Hope, was very unusual and he actually got fined by it by the dga is he didn't put any of the crew credits at the beginning of the movie which was the norm like you had to say who directed it who wrote it who produced it editing all that and everything but you know the star wars movies they just open up in a galaxy a long time a long time ago or galaxy, far far away far far away <laughs> way back when in the galaxy <laughs> galaxy a long time ago far far away whatever it is someone's gonna get mad i'm sorry um he a long opens time, up with a long the, time ago with, in with a galaxy cr- far far away he opens up with the crawl and he got fined by, I think it was like $225,000 by the DGA. 250000 Whoa, last time. And then, so for this film, he wanted to do the same thing. And as for Star Wars, Lucas 
wanted to place all the crew credits at the end of the film to interfere with the opening. He thinks the crawl is very important to these films, which it really is. It sets the tone, sets the mood. The WGA, the Writers Guild of America, and Directors Guild of America, DGA, had allowed for this for the first film because Lucas directed it and opened it with the logo for his namesake, Lucasfilm. So he got away with it with like a loophole and a little bit of a fine. But for Empire, they refused to allow Kirshner or the first and second unit directors to be credited only at the end of the film, fined by Lucas $250,000 when he ignored them and tried to have them film removed from theaters. Sorry, that's the $250,000 I meant. He was fined when he tried to ignore them. Because Lucas had followed the laws relevant to the United Kingdom where it was produced, the DGA was unable to sanction him and instead fined Kirshner $25,000. Lucas obviously paid Kirshner's fine, but was so frustrated that he left the WGA, DGA, and Motion Picture Association, which restricted his ability to write and direct future films. Man, that's crazy. And now it's so common now to open a film without putting any of the credits in. But I guess there was a different time. The DGA, you know, the guild, they want to show credit where credit's due. So I think it was very important to them to open the film. But also, like, it wouldn't work if you do two minutes of credits and then you do the text crawl. Like, it would just be a lot of reading Mm -hmm. for audiences. And so, I mean, I think it's really special, that opening. It really set the stage for films of the future. So... Lucas clearly was ahead of his time with how he imagined opening a film. And I'm glad he stuck to his guns because Star Wars is synonymous with that text crawl and nothing else. Just the first thing you see is the yellow font. And so good for him. Kudos to him for just standing up to them. Unfortunately, the repercussions he faced had negative uh, effects on his career. I'm, I don't think he cared too, too much about that. So uh, it's it's interesting to see how it's changed, though, because now... It's so common to open a film without credits, and I think more. I think the majority of films open without credits. You could say nowadays, it's up there. It's probably yeah. 50 Just the just generally the, the company logos you'll see oftentimes, yeah. and sometimes if it's an independent film, there'll be seventeen independent film logo companies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Monkey Productions, Losing the Chair Films, <laughs> Popcorn Addicts Movies, <laughs> like all sorts of productions. Losing the Chair, like film. Marcel the Shell had like ten of them. Yeah, there were a bunch. There were a bunch, <laughs> and. Budget is huge in this film. Visual effects and props are exceptional. The entire Millennium Falcon was actually built life-size for the first and only time for this installment because only half the spacecraft was constructed for Star Wars A New Hope and just part of it was used for a deleted sandstorm scene in Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. The Millennium Falcon measured 65 feet long, that's 19.8 meters in diameter, and 16 feet in 4.8 meters in height, with the mandible giving it an overall eight length of 80 feet or 24 meters. The Falcon's weight was 23 tons. Whoa. So they actually built this massive structure, this massive ship. Not to mention the miniatures in this film are so incredible. I mean, the Imperial Walkers are just one of my favorite parts of the entire Still franchise. Still look great. Still looks great. The battle sequences are exceptional. The, the space battles are just amped up we have a lot of ships a lot of things going on lots of explosions and stuff so the visual effects with industrial light and magic they just amped it up so much and the budget for ilm for this film was actually eight million dollars went to the special effects with ilm that's amazing because you have to you have to realize especially with the first film it's like nowadays ilm is huge as well as other visual effects companies they have lots of employees trained artists making these films with the visual effects department 
But back then, it was just like a handful of people doing it by hand. So you can imagine how difficult it was, how time-consuming it was, why why Lucas was probably so worn out after the first film because they're literally doing it all in a warehouse. And so it's there's just always something special about watching these older films that pull off such incredible visual effects. And there's some shots in this movie that still I that I think look like they were made today. Like the opening shot of that droid... Uh, leaving that ship and then flying into the ice planet. I wa- we watched it the other day. I was like, this looks like it was just made. It's really impressive how the quality of the visual effects are, how, how great the quality of the visual effects are in this film. And it's really special. And the lightsabers, I think, were a vast improvement over the old ones. There's just so many elements. The Cloud City, just incredible visuals. It's just breathtaking to behold that this team pulled this off. And there's a reason why ILM to this day is probably the gold standard for visual effects and animation yeah up there for sure and the imperial walkers these are all stop motion miniatures obviously designed by joe johnston inspired inspiration for the atats came from parasarantharium an extinct genus of rhinoceros and the largest land mammal in history I gotta look this up. Do they do they have really long legs? Something like that. ILM created models ranging from six to fifty centimeters. That's about two to twenty inches in height. ILM filmed the ATAT using stop motion animation against matte paintings created by Michael Pangrazio. All these Italian artists working Pangrazio. on Star Wars and in, in, in Spielberg movies from uh, the guy who made ET, Rambaldi. Well, yeah, he he hanged out, hung out with a bunch of Italians, Coppola, Scorsese. Because attempts at compositing miniature footage against live-action background footage yielded mediocre results. Additionally, ILM studied elephants to determine the best way to animate the four-legged AT-ATs. Although the stop-motion animation style gave the AT-ATs a jerky, staccato-like effect on film, ILM found this movement acceptable because the AT-ATs' mechanical nature. The sound of the AT-AT walking was created by sound designer Ben Burt, obviously using a punch press. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. Like Terminator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that sequence. And uh, do you remember the video game? Oh, of course that, I do. So the, they had a Star Is Wars. PlayStation? I think so. Yeah, or, PlayStation or, 1. I think it might have been PlayStation, but they had a great uh, Star Wars game where you enca- – you enact- That was one of the missions. Yeah, you enacted a bunch of the, the space battles in Star Wars, and one of the missions was – uh, you're. I think you. I think you are Luke. I'm not sure, but you're using the the jet and you're trying to take down the walkers and you gotta use the the ropes and you gotta trip them up and it was so fun. There were a lot of great moments of that video game. I, mean, I think it's uh, one of my favorite games we ever played. Plus the uh, the pod racing one for Star Wars. Those those were great video games. And I think you know it's funny because we. I think that the video games that we played, especially that one. Was we we spent more time doing that than watching the films when we were younger? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so it was the like we gained a lot of familiarity with Star Wars through the video games. It wasn't as easy to watch movies. We didn't. I don't think we had the Star Wars ones on VHS. I don't think it's we did. Today. I remember we would rent them at Blockbuster if we watched them. But yeah, like I said, our older brothers weren't huge Star Wars fans, so we never really got into them that much. So we we had obviously other VHSs that we we watched a lot. Like the Never Ending Story was like our favorite childhood movie. Jurassic Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So we were like yeah. more into like Spielberg movies. I would say we never really got into Star Wars until. Later in our lives, but we, the video games yeah. are fun. We loved Ninja Turtles. The prequel yeah. trilogy really got us really into Star Wars for sure at first when we were young. Oh yeah, because we were nine when it came out. Nine, so yeah, we grew up with the prequel tril- trilogy, which is why you know I, I do have a, an affinity for it. But so I think that the sequel trilogy, I think there are a lot of great moments to it, and I I do think that 
I, I, I am kind of alone in the outlier cast of I enjoy them. I, I think they're I think they're so well made and I love the actors and I, I like a lot about them, a lot of things about them. But I will say, especially the first two films. So I understand J.J. kind of imitating the storyline of A New Hope to get people back into the love of Star Wars and the archetypes and, and the storylines. So I, I'm OK with Force Awakens following A New Hope so closely in terms of structure. But in terms of The Last Jedi, which I think has a lot of great elements, I do think that follow, it follows the plot of this film way too closely where you have the Jedi training with an old master while the other characters are evading uh, forces, uh, enemy forces, where you have Rey training. Very with, slowly yeah, from, <laughs> a, from a perfect yeah, yeah. distance. Yeah, <laughs> so you have Rey training with Luke while the others are evading that ship that's chasing them. And, and then obviously you have... Uh, I'm sorry, Finn, going to that gambling planet. Because corporations, Cause, man. Because corporations, man. <laughs> and so I think that following the storyline to this one so closely, the structure of the story was a misstep and a misfire. Uh, it didn't give us something new that maybe we could have had a much more refreshing take for the, the way you structured the plot of the Star Wars film. So I think that that's definitely the, one of the biggest weaknesses to Last Jedi. Of It feels so similar to Empire because Empire really works. Although you can still say, I mean, it would have been nice if Luke spent a little more time on Dagobah. It seems like he's just there for like a day. <laughs> it could be an, an interstellar thing. Yeah, time that would have been, that would be yeah. great if you, if that planet was closer to uh, a, some, black, a hole. black hole. So that, <laughs> it's like a hyperbolic time chamber where you can trade with Yoda for like months. So, but but I understand it is the pacing is one of the strengths of the film. So you kind of accept that. But then when you see it again in Last Jedi and Ray's there for like a day, it's like, come on, she's gonna go fight the guy, fight everyone. Like, come on. Whereas whereas Luke's just trying to save his friends, she's like, I gotta kill everyone, kind of. But well, yeah, well, so for me, my biggest qualms with the new trilogy, obviously for the same reason, rewriting the same scripts. But that's what all these studios are doing with their their reboots their their new versions i mean the new scream movie was scream Scream, you know just new characters contemporary setting they're all pretty much the same but the thing with me is the bond between the trio in the original trilogy is so genuine and authentic and you can't help but love seeing them together you always want them reunited you want them to be together constantly because it seems so organic and natural and they have so much chemistry whereas the trilogy in the new the, the trio in the new trilogy, it seems so forced where they're like, they make us want them to be together. They make us want them to stay hanging out. And, and it's kind of like forced chemistry in a way. It didn't feel as authentic. It just seemed kind of rushed in, un, ingenuine in a way. So like whenever the three of them were together, I was like, eh, it's all right. Compared to when these three are together, it's magic. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> that's an excellent point because by the end of this trilogy, by the end of Return, you're like, these, these, these three are family. And they they all really love one another, and you can you can feel that. And in the new trilogy, it definitely doesn't have that feeling or that vibe. It seems like they're just like, yeah, they're friends, and they're all just happen to be like important members of the movement. So it doesn't. They don't. I completely agree. They don't have that bond. They don't have that chemistry. And I think just keeping the characters separated for so so many so long in many of the movies was a weakness. Where obviously the three in the originals, they're, they're not in this movie as much as they were in a new hope i think the only the only scene that three of them share together in this film is that when is it when leia kisses luke and then when the three of them are together i can't think of another sequence technically but, they're not yeah they're not together until yeah. she kisses him but pairs are together 
they're, they're close they're, by yeah, together. And they're, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're ge- geographically pretty close to closely <laughs> situated, but there there are pairs together multiple times uh, in this film. And but it's really established in the first film, the the trio, and then we get a lot more of it in the third film, obviously. Once uh once they free Han, spoilers. But I definitely agree the bond of the characters is really a strength to the original series. I'm one of the strengths to this series as well, and this movie specifically, is the character development of Luke Skywalker. One of the biggest strengths, I think, to this film, Empire Strikes Back, for the entire trilogy here, is the development of the character of Luke Skywalker. You know, in the first film, he's a very fun, adventurous young kid. After the loss of his family, he goes to take out vengeance for their loss. But vengeance. in this film, I think one of the most important things you can do for your protagonists, for your heroes, for your characters is to have them fail and fail multiple times because it makes their accomplishments and success that much more meaningful and emotional. Luke is constantly failing in The Empire Strikes Back. He almost get almost gets killed by the Wampa on Hoth. The Rebellion loses the Battle of Hoth. They lose their base. He falls into Vader's trap. He fails at becoming a Jedi. He leaves too early. He loses his fight to Darth Vader. He loses his hand to Darth Vader. He loses Han. Han is trapped in carbonite. He's been sold away. He's taken away by Boba Fett. He fails so, so much in this movie. And it's important because it'll only make him a stronger character. And his, again, his accomplishments later on. And once he obtains his goals and succeeds, it'll be that much more impactful and emotional. Other characters where in the Star Wars franchise where they suffer great loss... For example, Obi-Wan Kenobi loses his master, Qui-Gon Jinn. He fails at defeating Darth Maul with him together. Eventually beats him afterwards, but he loses Qui-Gon. He also loses Anakin to the dark side of the Force. So it's great when your protagonists have immense loss and failures just like Luke in this film. It's a necessary requirement for development of a character. You need to have loss and failure. in order. You can't just be all victory, victory, victory. So Lucas has always really understood that about his characters in the overarching storyline of this entire series. And you can look at, I mean, Anakin having the ultimate failure and then redemption. You know, he failed big time, like big time. <laughs> about, as, about as low as you can go. Yeah, yeah. Killing your wife <laughs> and a bunch of kids. Yeah. So, yeah, that's another example of deep failure for a lead character who ultimately becomes uh, a hero at the end of the story. Now, before we get more into the episode how about we head into our intermission sounds like a blast because there's still so much to talk about can't wait to get back from it but let's have some fun before we continue the best way to support raiders of the lost podcast besides using our coupon codes is to become a patron at patreon.com slash raiders of the lost podcast you get awesome perks like personalized messages and personalized videos every patron has access to a weekly bonus episode ten dollar twenty five dollar and one hundred dollars to your patrons have access to our discord where we interact with you and have watch parties twenty five dollar and one hundred dollars to your patrons get their own custom episode you pick the topic we do it just for you the $100 tier chosen one patron is the ultimate tier. You get an executive producer credit at the end of main episodes, a personal watch party, and after three months, you get to have a segment on the show. Our patrons make the show possible, make it our full-time job, so thank you so much for the support. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. You'll get 20% off. And free shipping on your entire order worldwide and galaxy-wide. Whatever planet you're on, 
Manscaped just launched their Boxer Briefs 2.0. And I'm telling you, if I was trapped on Hoth and I needed to keep warm and comfortable and cozy, I'd be using my Boxer Briefs from Manscaped because they are beyond comfortable, so soft, so smooth. Plus, they got a little extra space for your junk. I also recommend their Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer, which is basically a Millennium Falcon for your grooming needs. It has the 7,000 RPM motor, skin safe to the touch, waterproof, built-in light, wireless charger. You can use this thing in the shower at night. Manscaped's Platinum 4.0 Package Collection is the best deal yet. It includes the Lawnmower 4.0 Trimmer, Weed Whacker Ear Nose Hair Trimmer, Body Wash, 2-in-1 Shampoo Conditioner, Deodorant, Anti-Chafing Ball Deodorant, Ball Spray Toner, as well as Boxers, and a shed travel bag. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. You'll get 20% off and free shipping worldwide. This episode is also brought to you by our great friends at movieposters.com. Use our special promo code Raiders10 at their website to get 10% off your order today. They have a gigantic selection of all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, as well as a library of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable you can get your favorite star wars posted to a classic film to marvel whatever they got you covered use their website movieposters.com use our coupon code raiders 10 to get 10 percent off your order today and then we are also doing our very special movie poster giveaway with movieposters.com for this episode so if you don't win the contest be sure to head over to that website anyway all right now that we've heard from our amazing sponsors how about we get into our intermission let's do it and begin with the movie Quote competition. You ready? I'm ready. All right. This one's from me. I imagine so. No, I'm <laughs> kidding because you sometimes you do uh, fan ones. Yeah. yeah. Quit busting my chops, man. Let me get get to the quote. <laughs> 50 years old. What a birthday. Goddamn 50 years old. Been on the force 20 years. Not a scratch on me. Not a scar. Got a wife, kids, a house, a fishing boat. But I can kiss all that goodbye because my new partner has a death wish. My effing life is over. Lethal weapon. <laughs> <laughs> it's only the great Danny Glover can do it. <laughs> Murtaugh. <laughs> That's a great movie. That's a good movie. All time. All right, here's my quote. The only time black folks are safe is when white folks is disarmed. And this letter had the desired effect of disarming white folks. Great quote. Give everyone a moment. <laughs> I think this is one of his most underrated movies. This is from The Hateful Eight. Correct, Amundo. Such a good movie. Samuel Jackson should have won an Oscar for this. He's really great in it. Absolutely he really incredible. Is. In and it. he's talking about the Lincoln letter that he forged to fool white men into being friendly to him. Talk that sis! Talk <laughs> that sis! <laughs> he's just laughing. She's so good in that movie. Yeah. She won an Oscar for that. She did. Guess this movie release year. Scream 3. The best Scream. Carrie Fisher has kidding, a cameo in kidding. it. It's the first Scream's the best one. Scream 3. I'm trying to remember the plot. Is that the one with the with brother? With Stab. With the brother? It's, no, it's the, one, it's the one with Stab. The movie's being made. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. The movie. Oh, the yeah. So the, the movie one. Um, I think the brother is her. Her brother is is the killer. Oh, the killer. Yeah, this one? At the, at the I don't. Want, I don't want to spoil it for people. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> it's freaking twenty year old movie. It's okay. Almost. 20. Almost. Oh, hint. Oh, goddamn. <laughs> no, I was going mid two thousands. Anyways, I'm gonna go with um, Scream Three, two thousand and six. Gotcha. It was two thousand. That's why I said almost. Oh 20. man, <laughs> dude, you got me. Tricked him. Oh man, it's my own fault for trying to take advantage of it. <laughs> two thousand. What year did The Jerk come out? 
with Steve Martin. 1988. 79. Oh, 79. Old, old movie. movie. Holy crap. All right. Movie pop quiz time. As we all know, Mark Hamill has voiced the Joker many times. Can you name one project that Mark Hamill voiced the Joker in? Batman and Phantom Menace. I don't think that's him. Let me double check, though. Let me uh, double check your answer. Wow, it looks like you really looked into your uh, trivia question. Well, I made a list of projects he voices the Joker in. Uh huh. Hold on. Batman, Phantom Menace, Joker, actor. Let's see if Anthony's correct. Yeah, it was him. No, wait, no, no. Phantom Menace. Did you say Phantom Menace? Mask of the Phantasm. Okay, Mask there you of go. Phantasm. Mask I'm sorry. <laughs> Star Wars threw That's me off. That's what threw me off, too. Yeah. I was like, Mask Phantom of the Phantasm. Yeah. There you go. So he's also the Batman the, anime, Batman the Animated Series, The Adventures of Batman and Robin, Batman The Mask of the Phantasm. Great movie. Video games, Arkham Asylum, Batman Arkham City, and Batman Arkham Knight. I like when Bruce gets stuck in that, um, that like, the theme coaster. park roller coaster place. That's a great scene. Dude, we love that movie. Yeah. I want to watch it. I haven't seen it since we were really kids. good. Yeah. Yeah, Mask of the Phantasm, sorry. I was like... Star Wars throwing me off. Yeah. I didn't even put two and two together when you said it. Okay, here's my quiz question. How many acting credits does Bruce Dern have? Like his entire life? <laughs> 92? 192. 192. <laughs> what was he, like a Yo! Play commercial too? <laughs> like, <laughs> No, he was in a lot of TV when he was young. He was in a lot of um, like those cowboy westerns. That's yeah. why that's why Tarantino loves him so much. He was in a lot of western movies and a lot of the cowboy westerns, TV movies back in the day. Bounty law, bounty law. <laughs> All right, who we got for haters this week? So, uh, unsubscribes. What do we got, Anthony? Anyone good? Oh yeah, totally. Who is it? We we got some. Hold on, He's I guess pulling it up. I'm pulling it up. All right, I got. It. <laughs> this is a good one. <laughs> Uh, we got a lot of toxic hate on our. I, I posted a video about BB-8 behind the scenes and how to, to show the scenes of BB-8 moving on his own. There's a there was a guy in green suit basically pushing like a ramp, not like a ramp, but like he had a poles, metal poles like a sled pushing BB-8 around. And, that, and then they erased the guy in the sled uh, to show BB-8 alone in the film. There was so much hate on that video. Yeah, it's crazy. And, but one of them was just crazy. This guy one law. B-O-O-O and whatever. He wrote, just like mainstream news, fake, and gave me an, and put a middle finger emoji. You put a video of it behind the scenes. I, I don't know how it's fake news. I mean, it's literally a behind the scenes video from The Force Awakens, like DVD. It's crazy. Man, these people, wild. All right, and then we have... <clears throat> so Wadzi actually pointed out this really great Easter egg in Bullet Train... Uh, they said, you can't believe you guys didn't notice that Lemon put the Percy sticker on Logan Lerman, who played Percy Jackson. Oh. Very disappointed. If you guys weren't so awesome, I would have to unsubscribe. But luckily, they're still with us. But that was a great, I didn't even notice that. So great Easter egg right there. That was an awesome one. Cool. Uh, we have a great five-star review from Kyle Stan. Best podcast out there. Absolutely love the podcast. I've listened to almost every episode, and some of them I've listened to multiple times. Uh As a side note, Quentin Tarantino started a podcast going through old films, and I think you guys would find it pretty interesting. Heard about that. He does it with with another guy. They they have like a VHS 
Oh, I love that. And they like go through old movies. I think it's a guy he, if I remember, it's a guy he might have worked with at the video store. I think that he's so. still friends with something like, like that. I think so. Yeah, I'll have to look into it. On this day in film history, today is. Oh, I'm sorry, we forgot about Godfather patron. Who is it? Our Godfather patron for today is Saul Aguello. Saul, thank you for becoming a Godfather David, patron. Today of our Empire Strikes Back episode. We made you an offer you couldn't refuse. a Godfather patron. But this allows us to do the show full time, so we appreciate your support so much, Saul. Big supporter of the show. And Saul chose actually a really cool movie for their bonus review, Jeepers Creepers. Oh, I love Jeepers yeah, Creepers. Super underrated horror film. Man, that was a cool movie when yeah. we were kids. Yeah, it was awesome. So I can't wait to do that bonus review for you, pal. Thank you so much for supporting us. It means the world to us. That truck the guy drives, that yeah. Jeepers drives, is yeah. crazy. I love this the guy. He's just like, he's got this like Western style, like he's got the hat and he's got the big coat. I feel like they could re- make a new version of that. That's really They cool. have. There's actually been a bunch. They're all just like mediocre the it's sequels. A, it's a, like, there's a lot of potential here with that character. Yeah, I think so, too. Man, they just can't get any new horror <laughs> characters going for more than one movie. Movie monsters, it uh, seems like it's a problem. Except Sinister, for except for Krasinski. Sinister bombed. The second The second film was a dud. The Jeepers Creepers sequels were duds. Like, I mean, Don't Breathe was almost the Insidious next one. Insidious is mostly, eh, pretty good. I like um, the first one. With the the Conjuring ones. does a good job, but I think with movie... Th- those are different. That's yeah. like Possession. So movie mo- yeah, movie monsters, it's hard to get, hard to nail a sequel. I think really the Quiet Place this 1 century. and 2. Quiet Place 1 and 2 are the only ones to have a great sequel with movie monster. That's a little different, I would say, because it's partially a prequel, and also it's like an invasion of aliens. In- Number 2? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess it's an it, ongoing yeah. story versus yeah. like... Uh, not that the other ones aren't, but like another part 2 of... I disagree. Like Nightmare on Elm Street or something like that. With I, like, I mean, like one, I mean, it says part two in the title. One, one movie monster. It's not a part two, except not, it is. Not a herd taking over the entire planet. I mean, one monster. One villain. Okay, a Michael one Myers, a Freddy Krueger. Okay, you know I what I mean? Thank we you were talking saying. about singular characters, right. then you brought up an invasion of an entire Well, I mean, planet. you said it's not like a part two. <laughs> I meant, all right, you know what? Let's move on to- Got August. him. On this day, it's on the, it's on the tape. <laughs> On this day in film history, today is August 29th, and not much happened today in 1998, the Disney classic. Brink. Wait, August 29th? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> We're filming this ahead of schedule. I'm sorry. August 29th, 1990. Let me just, let me, shut up. <laughs> shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. Seriously, shut your mouth. In 1998, Brink came out. In 2012, Lawless came out. You got anything to say about that, Anthony? Sean Hillcoat's awesome. Happy birthday to the late Ingrid Bergman and also Richard Attenborough. That's about it for today. Oh, wow. Two awesome directors. My streaming recommendation for this episode on August 29th is Eyes Wide Shut was put on Netflix for August. I don't know if it'll be gone by the time the next month rolls around with September. So get a viewing in before it's gone. (laughs) Yeah, get that viewing in, guys. (laughs) I recommend Prey on Hulu. It's a really great take on the Predator franchise, a very satisfying new version and fresh uh, introduction for new characters into the story and the lore. It was a lot of fun. I recommend you check it out on Hulu. Now let's get to how we talked about earlier how Mark Hamill in real life had a severe motorcycle accident. He almost lost his life, but he ended up having facial reconstructive surgery to repair the damage done to his face. And this was not originally part of the script with the Wampa attack on Luke, but they Lucas had to figure out a way to insert something to explain why Mark Hamill's face looks pretty different now compared to A New Hope. He said he had extensive surgery. 
He still looks great. It came out well, but you can tell there's a noticeable difference with his cheekbones and everything like that and his chin and his lips and nose. And so they came up with the idea for the Wampa attack to account for his facial surgery, fit in perfectly with the story and the script. And, you know, Mark Hamill was very worried about the situation. He thought his career was completely over by the time it just started, really. This was like his really his big role. He's a superstar. He's Luke freaking Skywalker. Horrible motorcycle accident. But fortunately, Lucas and everyone else was able to figure out a way around it and implement it into the story. It's um, I think it's like a really ingenious way to do it where you believe it in the story. It works. Also, having him res- being rescued by Han gives Han an heroic moment. Uh, shows how his character has really changed. Where once again he's given the option of he wants to get out of there to because Jabba's after him for a ton of money. And then once once again Han shows the true her- heroism he has inside of him by saving Luke. Also, seeing him wield the lightsaber was really cool. It's the first time. The only time that happens in the entire series, I think, Han Solo. For Han? Yeah, for Han holding a lightsaber. I think so. And also, when Han cuts open that animal and stores Luke inside of its stomach to stay warm, that was actually inspired by the story of Hugh Glass, which the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio's movie, The Revenant, was based on. It's an old Native American story about Hugh Glass, who we all know was mauled by a bear, and then he crawled hundreds of miles to take vengeance on those who left him there. And in reality, in part of that story is he did hide inside like an elk or or some some kind of animal he killed. And so Lucas used that There's as a ins- horse in the movie. A ho- yeah, horse in the movie. And you, Lucas used that story as inspiration for Han storing Luke inside the belly of that beast, which I really love. It's that connection to, to Hugh Glass, to the the Revenant, which you, which is pretty wild. The Empire Strikes Back is the first film of the trilogy that actually feels like a war we talked about earlier. We have the battle sequences in space in the first one, but now we're, we have a ground attack. We have a ground battle, and the Empire seems stronger than ever, even though they had their Death Star destroyed. First feeling of war, you know, the, the Rebel Alliance base echo on hoth is taken over like we said and actually this film was shot on location in Finns, norway and there's a fierce snowstorm that hit the hotel where the cast and crew were staying normally this would have shut down production for a few days until everything got cleared up but director irvin kirshner thought these weather conditions were perfect and an excellent opportunity to capture some realistic scenes where luke wanders through the snow after escape escaping the wampa cave he did this by sending Mark Hamill outside in the cold during the snowstorm while he and a cameraman stayed and filmed inside the hotel's front hall. I love that. That's just great, smart filmmaking. Obviously, the seasoned veteran understanding, like, this is a great opportunity. And I, I love the sequence. I love seeing the snow, seeing the ice, seeing this planet. And to be such a stark contrast from desert and heat and emptiness, I thought it was just really brilliant. The cinematography is stunning. It just opens with these great landscape shots, and I, I really adore this sequence. I think it's really special, and there's a reason why they returned to it. Didn't, didn't Last Jedi have a sequence in Hoth? Did it? I think so. Let me check. Keep talking. Yeah, double-check that. But I, I just think it's strong filmmaking. Uh, it's a great way to start the, the, the film. And I love the sequence where Luke's being held captive by the Wampa, and it's a sequence where we see him using the force to grab his lightsaber, which we hadn't seen before. And things like that. It's just really practical, simple filmmaking 
what they did was they had Mark Hamill, he's hanging upside down. They just had him throw the lightsaber away, and then they reversed the footage, and it looks like it's a very simple effect of the lightsaber going into his hand. So I love the practical filmmaking they used. Yeah, they didn't go back to Hoth. I think you're just thinking because it's a remake, and they did it with the Battle yeah. of Crate. Yeah, Crate. Crate, <laughs> yeah. And the relationships between the trio are what give this movie so much heart. Han and Luke, they seem like a big brother, little brother dynamic. It's great. It's sweet. It's sincere. Even though Han gets jealous about Leia kissing. Harrison's hilarious in this movie. He still, like, doesn't let it get to him. He's like, he knows it's like, he's like, take it easy, kid. Don't worry about it. Like, it's not your fault. (laughs) But they have big brother, little brother. He seems protective of Luke. He still calls him kid. And like Anthony said, he has a great arc where he's he's about to leave and abandon the rebellion, but he goes to save Luke because he cares about Luke. Then Han and Leia, they're starting to reveal their feelings for each other. Han's much more vocal about it and wants Leia to admit that she feels the same way about him that he does about her. But she's hiding it and pushing it down, deep down, and pissing Han off because of it. And eventually he pisses her off so much that Leia kisses Luke pretty intensely in front of Han just to piss him off. Now, did George Lucas know that they were brother and sister at this point? He did not, even though they kissed twice in this movie. At this point, neither the characters, the actors, the audience, nor Star Wars creator George Lucas himself knew that Luke and Leia were actually going to be brother and sister. The idea that they were siblings came into being during the writing of the next Star Wars film, the Return of the Jedi. At the end of Empire, Leia also gives Luke a little peck after bringing him aboard the Millennium Falcon, subsequent to his confrontation with Vader when his hand was cut off. This is clearly just a comforting get better kiss, not really any romantic implications behind it. And she only kisses Luke to piss Han off. Yeah, I see people are always like making fun of how messed up it is. It's like, they didn't know. They don't know. It's not like they're they're knowingly doing it. And I think it's I think it's really smart to make Leia the twin. And it probably wouldn't have worked to have include another major character in return. So that's probably why they chose to make Leia the twin. And then we get that great tease by Yoda. There is another. It's <laughs> <laughs> our it, final hope. There is another. There is another. <laughs> and I, but I really love the Dagobah sequences. I love Yoda. He's fantastic. And, what a great character and performance by Frank Oz. But I, I but I like how Yoda he has this complete 180 turn because we were first introduced to him he's like this silly goofy little dude and he's not being very helpful. He just seems to be oh. Yeah, he just seems to be messing with Luke and and he's driving Luke crazy. He gets in a fight with R2D2. Yeah, yeah, he gets in a fight with R2D2. <laughs> he just seems like this zany little guy and and Luke's like tired of he's like I've had it. he's like can't have, have he can't stand it anymore and then he he basically shouts a couple of times at Yoda and then all of a sudden Yoda turns serious speaking to Obi Wan not ready and he's like because he, he's talking it was all tested Yoda was testing Luke's patience and Luke clearly didn't have any patience which is a bad sign for a Jedi of being the of of, of possibly falling into the dark side. And it's an important virtue to have patience and control over your emotions, obviously. But I love how Yoda has this test for Luke. The first thing he ever does with Luke is testing him. And Luke actually does fail that test. Yoda is one of the best parts of this movie. And it was a complete risk, you could say. Even though Star Wars is very successful, it's full of exotic characters, brought to life with prosthetics and other effects. 
this was making a major character out of a puppet that needed to be emotional, give great dialogue, give monologues, and be very inspirational at the same time as being a puppet in 1980. The puppet was originally designed and built by Stuart Freeborn for Lucasfilm and ILM. In fact, four versions of Yoda had to be built for Empire, each designed for specific shots. These included a puppet designed to be manipulated by world-famous puppeteer Frank Oz, who also did the voice. We all know him from Miss Piggy. Two radio-controlled versions for longer shots, such as the scene where Yoda rides on Luke's back during his training on Dagobah. And a larger suit that could be worn by a diminutive actor and stunt performer, Deep Roy. A second animatronic head was also built in a mere three days by Nick Maley and Bob Keane. Yoda's voice and puppeteered by Frank Oz, who also did the voice for the prequel trilogy and the sequel trilogy as well. Outside of the films, the character has been mainly voiced by Tom Kane, starting with the 2003 Clone Wars animated television series. George Lucas was so impressed by Frank Oz's performance as Yoda that he spent thousands of dollars on an advertising campaign to try to get him an Oscar nomination for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. However, it didn't work out and failed exclusively. Lucas felt this wasn't fair to Oz, who doesn't, who didn't really care at the time. And this just shows you that people that are doing voices and puppet work back then, but now mocap work, for example, with Andy Serkis, they're so underappreciated by the Academy in, in terms of a critical acclamation and awards. According to StarWars.com, the original idea for portraying Yoda was to be a trained monkey in a costume to bring the wise and powerful Yoda to life. Apparently, the costumed monkey was to be trained to walk around the Dagobah set with Yoda's signature cane. Interesting. However, a lot of the crew that had worked previously with Stanley Kubrick on 2001 A Space Odyssey, when they actually tried to do a lot of those opening sequences with real monkeys, even though there are some baby monkeys in there in the actual movie... They found out that, that it was almost an impossible situation to deal with. They couldn't really film them. They couldn't really train them very properly to act on camera because they're animals. So that's why that movie mostly is actors in costume for 2001 A Space Odyssey as well as some little baby monkeys here and there. But they scrapped the idea. They didn't even really try it. They, the producers and filmmakers that had experience with it were like, nah, bro, we can't do that. Yeah, and plus, he's, him having like his little limbs and that it makes it work. Like if he had these huge long arms, it would have been like, I don't know, it doesn't feel it's, the same. It's, it's tough to train a monkey be yeah. like, all right, look over there, monkey. It's, yeah. it's tough and probably would have been horrible for animal rights in terms of what they probably would have put the monkey through. It would have been intense and really unfair to the monkey. And also, you could also argue that the success of Yoda, the acceptance of the audience of this puppeteered, very important integral character to the story led to the possibility of more puppeteered characters in the future of film. For example, the never-ending story with Falcor never probably would have been pulled off if they didn't see that it worked so well with Yoda in The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, Falcor is great. Goated. Are you going, do you, do you prefer Puppet Yoda or CGI Yoda? I like Puppet Yoda. Give me the OG original Yoda. Yeah. I love I love Puppet Yoda too, but there are instances where the CGI Yoda is just necessary, like when he fights Count Dooku. Yeah, yeah. And that was, that's a badass fight. Yeah, that's cool. It's a great fight. You can't do that with a puppet. Yeah, there's no way. Like, seeing seeing Yoda ignite his lightsaber, is, I was like, oh, crap! <laughs> it's pretty, pretty <laughs> crazy. When he walks into his office. Yeah. <laughs> no, when he fights Dooku. And, and, oh, I'm sorry, I was thinking about Palpatine. But then he has a great fight with Palpatine, too. So it would, I know people complain about the CGI Yoda, but it would have been impossible to do that, yeah. to do the fight sequences, because Yoda, Yoda fighting in the prequels are some of the best moments of the prequels. And so, I mean, as a 
CGI character was a necessity, and there's still no way to do that without making it CGI because he's literally jumping around all over the place, and he's so so fast. So I don't mind the CGI Yoda as much as, as much as other people do uh, because of that the physicality of the role in terms of the prequels compared to the original. But I love the puppet Yoda, and I, I really like how Ryan Johnson brought puppet Yoda back for Last Jedi. I think that was a highlight of the movie. Like when he showed up, the entire crowd like was elated. You could feel it, and everyone was laughing. So I think that, uh, and also the if it's, it feels like the interpretation of Yoda in the prequels is much more uh, stoic, and the puppet Yoda in the originals and in Last Jedi, he has a lot of that humor and that goofiness still to him as part of his personality. We don't really see that in the in the prequels. He's all just super serious, but in this one. In Last Jedi, you can see that playful nature that Yoda has. Well, he's serious when they're training. Yeah, yeah. From, from yeah. that point on, he's very serious when he's speaking with Obi-Wan. Mm-hmm. He kind of loses the, the goofiness and silliness and the silly jokes here and there because he's nothing but wisdom after that. That's a good you point. You could argue. Yeah. It's so interesting to see how powerful this little green creature was at one point. He's not even in his prime. He's almost 800, he's 800 years old. Training Jedi, 800 years I have. So it's pretty incredible. That's why the fight sequences to finally see what Yoda can do was one of the most exciting things for diehard Star Wars fans to see in that prequel trilogy who've been watching it for decades. And finally we get to see what he can do because you could argue that him lifting the X-Wing out of the lake was his last bit of life force maybe this last use of intensity of, of, of the great, force of his, of his great powers, powers yeah which led to maybe a, a, a quicker death and that's why he's maybe so hesitant to do it at first but he maybe he knows while he's doing it like this is going to kill me at some point but i have to do it to show him that it's not impossible that it's not about the size of the rock or the ship it's just about everything in your mind you ask for the impossible <laughs> it's, a, it's a great sequence and what i love about yoda's story in this film is we learn a lot more about the force and yoda's explaining so much to luke and it's basically explaining to the audience too that's why it works so well understanding how it how it works how it can flow through luke how luke can uh, manipulate it can can hone it uh, to do it to bend it as his, to use it as a, a tool and as a weapon i really love the training sequence it's it's a lot of fun i like luke being isolated and it's it's just a great moment for Luke, and then I just I love in return when he shows up and he's just got the black Jedi suit and he's like a full on Jedi. But these are like the early steps to becoming that version of himself. You can seriously see the influence of Dagobah with Luke being trained by Yoda and explaining everything to the audience with the Matrix with Morpheus and Neo. The, the similarities are immense just explaining what the matrix is versus what the force is and in training sequences the black suit at the end neo's black suit at the end when he's finally the one with with luke having the black suit in outfit when he's finally mastered being a jedi it's really interesting and in addition to learning about the force we learn more about the dark side from yoda about how hate and fear lead to the dark side and he makes luke faces fears and luke says he's like i'm not afraid he's like you will be you will be you will be south park spoofed <laughs> that really well i can't remember what the thing what the moment was but they did a great spoof of that and jedi are masters of being calm and staying at peace a jedi uses the force for knowledge and defense never for attack there is no why do or do not there is no try so so many great pieces of wisdom we get told by yoda to the audience as well as to luke and also luke 
I mean, we learned that Obi-Wan had a lot of similarities to Luke, to Luke because at first Yoda's reluctant to start training Luke because he's so old and he's impatient and he's got a lot of like, angst and emotion in him. But Obi-Wan says multiple times, those eyes so different. And, and he it's, it's fun to see that Obi-Wan was reckless as a young man too because we've always known Obi-Wan generally to be uh, always making the right call and right decision for the most part. So I like how Obi-Wan is giving us a little more backstory about himself and how he went through this and how Yoda at first had trouble training Obi-Wan. Yeah, like when Luke wouldn't stop playing Fortnite and Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan was like, <laughs> was I so different? <laughs> Addicted to the game you are. <laughs> Speaking of Obi-Wan, obviously his role was done again by Alec Guinness. And Alec Guinness actually only worked for one day on this movie. It's so ironic like how much he hated working on Star Wars with how much money he made from it and how how much fans love him. So during principal photography, it remained unclear if Sir Alec Guinness would return as Obi-Wan as he had just had an eye had an eye operation at the time. He finally did agree and worked just one day on the movie, Wednesday, September 5th, 1979. He arrived at 8.30 a.m. to record lines and, and footage for Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he completed his scenes by 1 p.m., for which he was paid a quarter of a percentage point of the movie's gross, which was worth millions of dollars. That's a lot. So five and a half hours, he probably made $2 million. Oh, my God. Maybe more. That's insane. Probably way more. Because he made $583 million. Yeah, but then gross DVD sales, VHS sales. That's crazy. So, yeah, he, so he's, he might have pulled $10 million for five hours of work. I'm guessing, I'm guessing I'm guessing. $20 million over, over time. Insane. At least. That's, he's, he made so much money off Star Wars. I mean, he's after the first one because he, he made 2%. I yeah, think he, he signed a 2% deal with the first one. And then he's such an important character for the, for the lore. So... They're, they're like, they got to have him. So I guess his agent was like able to demand this. And man, good for him because he worked for like 30 years and they never, <laughs> he did probably 30 years of work and never made a fraction of what he made for Star Wars first for just such a little, such a little work, which is really an awesome story for Alec Guinness. We're also introduced to a couple of new, really important characters in The Empire Strikes Back. Obviously, Boba Fett, the bounty hunter hired by Darth Vader has become a huge fan favorite. He's finally got his own TV show after they brought him back from the dead from surviving the Sarlacc pit, which we'll get into in The Return of the Jedi. But also we have Palpatine, who we now learn, like Anthony said earlier, that Darth Vader has a master himself. It is Palpatine, and he's worried about the this young boy who just destroyed the Death Star. He's the offspring of Anakin Skywalker. The Force is strong with him. He must not become a Jedi. He must join us or die. And he's convincing Darth Vader that, like, search your feelings to know you know it to be true. You know he's your son. You know, well, you know he's the son of Anakin Skywalker. Anakin Skywalker we haven't yeah. gotten the reveal yet. I'm sorry. Just before you, just a quick on Boba Fett. I thought it was really cool how Lucas obviously is famous for tinkering after the fact, but one of the best decisions he had was he actually had Tamura Morrison, who plays Boba Fett, do voice work on Empire. And return, so it blends in together with him because we know him as Boba Fett in the prequel trilogy. So I thought it was great to have his voice in the new release of this film. Gotcha. Good point. And then also we have Lando Calrissian, who is Han Solo's old friend. We hope, and we realize they are buds, and we learn that Calrissian is an old gambler, an old friend of Han's, and Han's beat Han beat him in a bet to win the Falcon. That's how he has his ship. Calrissian calls it his ship. 
Calrissian's another male character who objectifies the hell out of Princess Leia in this entire franchise. But Billy Billy Williams is super charismatic, super charming, a lot of fun. He's more Billy char- D. Williams. I'm sorry, Billy D. Williams. More charming than even Han Solo in a lot of respects. Also an ambiguous character. We don't know if he's going to help or save them or betray them. He eventually betrays them out of protection for his city that he's in control of. But then eventually changes sides again after he hands Leia and Han to Darth Vader. He helps Leia and Han, or well, Leia, escape eventually. Yeah, Lando's a great character, and I love Cloud City. It's a terrific design and concept, and the team did an amazing job of bringing that uh, that location to life. And also, I like Lando. He's a great character because he's not he's not one note. He's three dimensional. Even though he has a short amount of screen time in the franchise, he an impact was really made. And also such an important aspect of the lore. But is he's a guy who you can't trust, but you can trust him. Just he, like Han. He's just like Han. He has that heart. He has the hero inside of him, but he has, you know, a rocky journey to get there. And yes, he does betray them, but it's out of the safety and protection of his own people. So it's like, would you make the same would you choose differently? I mean, they would the Empire would probably slaughter his entire city if he didn't if he didn't decide to help them. So his hands really were tied, and then he did prove himself by helping them get out, and then also in return. And then it was great to see him in Rise of Skywalker. I thought it was so surprising and a lot of fun to see him show up. And it's great to get some more of an origin story for Lando, a little bit with him featured in, in Solo, Solo, the yeah. Han Solo movie, which is a lot of fun. Hopefully Glover can play the character again. I thought he was phenomenal as, as young Lando Calrissian. Now let's get back... Well, let's finally talk about Darth Vader in detail because he has a lot more screen time in this film. He's introduced on Hoth, walking through the shards of the battle like a total badass. And it's really incredible just to see him not on a ship. You know, it's really great to see him on ground somewhere on a planet looking for somebody (laughs) in a frozen planet. He is savage in this movie. He force, force chokes to death anybody who fails him. So is it? Two or three, two officers, two commanders officers. that get yeah. choked to death by him. With the I force. love when he chokes the first one, and he's like, then he goes to the other one. You're in charge now. That guy is like, crap. <laughs> <laughs> and then he he fails him too, yeah. and then he gets forced choked to death as well. I love the character development of Vader in this film. Like we mentioned earlier, showing that he is actually an inferior to his master Palpatine. But there are so many Easter eggs to the reveal that we see at the end. I just I love how he's not just like this kind of like this one note super villain the, and then we see by the end when we, it's revealed that Luke is his son you see the pull and then you understand why Vader even suggested trying to turn him and trying to train Luke to become a member of the dark side and you can see there's like that's the first hint of you know love and humanity within him of him even though Palpatine's like yeah sounds good bro let's give it a shot he's like do you think it will work and then it's Vader saying I don't want to kill my son that's this like he, that's the subtext of him offering to try and train Luke Skywalker and turn him to the dark side. Well, he does say he'll join us or die. He says that. Yeah. He also says multiple times that he's going to kill him, and then he spares his life at the end of this film, obviously. He could have taken him out, no problem, but he, he tried to talk Luke into it. I think I think deep down, it's the father and him not wanting to kill his son. And it, it's all in like basically subtle subtext in, in his story arc. Well, also when they're talking after while well, Luke is hanging off that little pillar uh, before um, when he before after he reveals who he is to Luke, 
He says we can destroy the emperor. So he wants to yes. take out the emperor so they can rule father and son. So there is some humanity left inside of him. You like you said, he does not want to kill his son. It's kind of like going to be like a a very last resort. And fortunately, we know what happens at the end of Return of the Jedi. But um, James Earl Jones obviously returned to voice Vader. He's still doing it, which is wild. As with Star Wars, he declined a credit though because he considers himself special effects to David Browse's physical performance. So that's really that's respectful nice. yeah. to not take a credit as Darth Vader, give it to David Prowse. James Earl Jones earned $15,000 for half a day's work, plus a small oh percentage of oh the profits. <laughs> that's a lot. That's so much. The hourly on that. The hourly on him and Elegant. It's become is, like $10 million an hour. Him and Elegant has both worked half a day and made probably $10 million just from this movie easy. What's really fascinating about the reveal is that a lot of people who worked on the movie didn't even know about the twist of Luke being his father. And Lucas didn't even tell Mark Hamill until right before they filmed the scene because Hamill, the lines written in the script were different. The lines written in the script were Vader saying, I killed your father. That's what they had on the page. So nobody knew that. And then right before they filmed the scene, George Lucas went to Mark Hamill. And he's like, this is the actual line. He's going to say, I, I am your father. He and, even gave David Prowse different dialogue yeah, as well so, as Vader. Yeah, David Prowse. On set, David Prowse I said, I killed your father. And Mark Hamill's reacting to that basically on the day. And so I thought it was just a great idea to not even – majority of the people who worked on the film knew this and then at the premiere uh, mark hamill told this great story on a talk show i think it was i think it was kimmel maybe and then he said that he was watching the premiere of empire with uh, harrison ford beside him and then that scene came up and darth vader revealed that he was his father and then harrison ford whispered to mark hamill you didn't tell me that happened <laughs> like, I, he didn't even know harrison ford didn't even know that was the twist so it was a great way of keeping it under wraps, keeping it a secret, which is, I think, a brilliant move. The battle sequence is great. It's There's a lot more lightsaber fighting compared to the previous film with Obi-Wan versus Vader. Mark Hamill did extensive training. He was doing fencing, martial arts, uh, lifting weights, all just to get in shape for this role. Lots of sword fighting. Obviously, this is a great 10-15 minute sequence of him being lured by Vader to the trap on Cloud City after he freezes Han Solo and Carbonite. And it's a great battle where clearly Darth Vader is more powerful than Luke. Like you said, he could have killed him if he wanted to. He's keeping him alive. He's trying to convert him to the dark side as a last resort because he doesn't want to kill his son. At least maybe I can make him turn to the dark side. But like you said earlier, the cinematography, really iconic imagery. Probably the greatest shot in Star Wars franchise history is the silhouette of their lightsabers glowing on that set. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, and you have the orange and blue contrasting with so much of the dark mid-tones and blacks of the image. It's really stunning. And I like, it's like, you could say, why is Vader looks like he's trying to kill Luke during the fight? Like, how did, how is he trying to spare him? Impressive. I think, yeah, <laughs> impressive. I think that Vader's trying to uh, infuriate Luke, trying to frustrate him, trying to get him emotional by dominating him in the fight, but not tr killing him. Like, he, I think that he knows he's, he's, he's trained... He knows how to fight, so if I swing at him, he's not gonna. I'm not gonna chop his head off. And so I think that Vader's whole intent with the fight is to get, bring the emotions out of Luke, make him feel desperate, and basically dominate him. And it'll be easier to con to convince him into joining me. So I think that's why he, Vader is intense in that fight, and he seems to be trying to kill him. But I think ultimately he understands like I need to break him down, get him to his lowest point, make him fail. See, there's no point in trying to fight me. 
and then maybe he'll turn on my side. Make him angry. Make him yeah. fearful. Mm-hmm. Like, use that hate to destroy me. He says, use your hate, which yeah. is a temptation to the dark side. So you're absolutely right. It, the sets in this sequence are amazing. There's, yeah. there's four terrific, beautiful sets that the crew made. They've become synonymous with Star Wars history. When you Google Vader and Luke Battle, you have that great, amazing, expansive set of the bottom half of the Cloud City all these beautiful lights it looks like it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of meters wide and in scope and then they're just on this huge uh, platform in the middle of the air it's just really wonderful and the battle in the sequence itself is kind of like a cat and mouse game just like the entire movie has been for vader trying to catch luke and the emperor trying to catch luke where you know luke's evading the attacks and going in different locations and sets so it's actually kind of a great metaphor for the entire plot of the film as well love it man love it you put that together <laughs> wow wow and like we said at the beginning you know hope is lost han solo getting frozen in carbonite is so dramatic and emotional and actually that was not the original plan george lucas froze han solo in carbonite because harrison ford was not signed on to the next film and was contemplating not joining return of the jedi Lucas intended for the Rebel to fly off with Chewbacca on the Millennium Falcon at the end of Empire Strikes Back with the plan to to return to his full capacity in Return of the Jedi. However, Lucas decided to stall the character's arc by freezing Han Solo in Carbonite. So unlike his co-stars Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford was only contracted for one Star Wars sequel. The actor was unsure about reprising the role due to his growing popularity and his involvement in Indiana Jones. At one point, Ford had hoped that Han would be killed off in the sequel through some kind of heroic sacrificial way lucas and star wars writers wanted to keep their options open however by freezing han and carbonite they left open the opportunity for the character to return but they also planted a seed in case ford never signed on for return of the jedi star wars producer howard kazangian ended up being the one to convince ford to reprise his role for the third film in the original trilogy Kazangian worked with Ford on Indiana Jones and the men were on good terms and he clearly made the correct points to change Ford's mind. I also want to know what the correct points of the salary were. <laughs> what was his contract for the third Rock. one? Rock. What, what what did they offer him just to get him back? An extra zero. Think I, about it. I, I'm Because the thing is, uh, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher signed on for three, so their deal was done. And Harrison... He he probably had so much sway, and to be like, you guys are gonna pay me if you want me for the third one. I I I guarantee he got a fat check. And he's like, I'm Indiana Jones. Like yeah. this is bigger than Han Solo yeah. at the time, and I think it's still because he's, he's not a lead. I think not he, in, I think, this, I think yeah. he was really like, I I just want to be lead characters, lead the lead actor of movies. So that could be a reason why he didn't want to come back because it wasn't his show, basically, you know. And he's obviously went on to become one of the most legendary leading actors of all time. If not the yeah. most legendary leading actor of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's crazy. Biggest, I think he's could be considered the, the greatest movie star. It's up there. He's top 10 for sure all yeah. time. He absolutely is. Even it, especially like if Gen Zers don't realize, like go back to the 80s, 90s, this guy. Harrison was Ford was the guy. On top of the world. He was the guy for, for a, a long, long time. time. Yeah, for a long he time. He was the guy for a long time. Luke has a, a bunch of great characteristics in this film as well. In addition to... Uh, everything he's gone through with with failing and then hopefully f- succeeding. But we see more uses of the Force and more powers of the Force. 
I really like the battle, the mind battle he has against Darth Vader on Dagobah, where he has to face his fears, and then he cuts off Vader's head, and his face is inside of it. It's a metaphor saying that, you know, his father or, like, his bloodline is Darth Vader. He's a—I think I look at that as— um, Luke is afraid of becoming like Vader, mm-hmm. afraid of the dark side. So that's how I interpret that. He's afraid of becoming uh, a bad person. He also has visions of the future. I like how Lucas doesn't show us it, but Luke just sees it. He's seeing the future. He's asking if Yoda, Yoda, if his friends are going to die or not, because clearly Yoda's seeing glimpses of the future as well. And this is why he decides to leave Dagobah early to incom- to not finish his Jedi training to save his friends which is a major characteristic of Luke of never abandoning his friends, even though he does for a little bit. <laughs> but he has to go back and save them. And even though Obi-Wan and Yoda try to convince him that he must finish his training, he's not ready to face Darth Vader, he still does it anyways. Yeah, it's it's a testament to Luke and Yoda and other Jedi are worried about the the emotion of passion, the emotion of love, and how it can turn someone like Anakin, how he was turned. But Luke... He has the same, I think, level of emotion, same level of ability to love and passion as Anakin, but he never, I think he's such a, so much stronger than Anakin where he never lets it take him over. And he always, it's always a positive love and he always, he's willing to sacrifice himself to save others. That's something maybe Anakin wasn't willing to do for most of his life. The, The ability to put your life on the line to save a friend. Maybe Anakin probably put himself before others when he was older. Han, Leia, and Chewie on the run from the Empire. It's a lot more entertaining, obviously, than what they did in the new trilogy. Yeah. And I love when they're hiding out on the on the supposed asteroid. They're flying through the asteroid storm and everything like that. It's really fun and campy at the same time. This is after Han and Leia actually kissed for the first time, which is really emotional as well. And they finally are admitting each other. And C-3PO shows up. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. That's just swell. And I love how the asteroid ends up being an organic being as well as all those bats inside of it. It's it's really fun. It's campy and it still holds up today. And I believe that at the time George Lucas was overworking the visual effects crew and they were upset about it having to constantly redo the sequence. One of them ended up putting a shoe inside the asteroid belt sequence as well as a potato. But I they have it. been changed since then. I, I love how Boba Fett is trailing right behind them, and they don't notice. <laughs> He's like right behind them to, when they fly away. It's just it's pretty funny to see. But I love the creativity of that that giant monster, and I love the scene where C three PO suggests to Han like a certain way to fix a certain thing, and Han just like. Chews him out, and then he then he turns to Chewie up in the rafters. He's like, "I think we should uh, probably replace the blah blah blah." <laughs> <laughs> and then we got the C three PO looks at him like, "Are you serious, bro?" <laughs> and R two D two has a lot to do in this movie as well. Not only does he help fix the hyperdrive on the Millennium Falcon after it was disabled by the Empire, leading to that guy obviously probably getting force choked off off screen <laughs> later on. <laughs> but R two is with Luke on his journey to Dagobah. He has some great sequences and funny moments with with Yoda where they're fighting over the flashlight and Yoda's smashing him in the head. <laughs> mine, 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 mine. <laughs> in that entire sequence where R two D two is actually in that mud pond was filmed in George Lucas's unfinished pool, and Lucas actually filmed that entire sequence. Movie magic, bro. Movie magic. All you need is a little bit of location. That's I, it. I think one of the strengths of this film, and what separates it from the other two films in this trilogy and many uh, in the sequels as well, is there isn't a giant ship to take down. 
There's no Death Star. Uh, it's not some just like huge battle at the end and we gotta save everyone or else the, it's all over. I, what makes this film special is that the emotional stakes are what supersede everything else and there isn't a huge battle at the end. It's, there's plenty of fighting and stuff. There isn't, but there isn't a Death Star to destroy. There isn't a mission to blow something up. The mission is Luke going after Vader. And I love that. I love how much smaller it is. I love how the the stakes of the film are not massive. It's more emotional. And I think that really is what separates this from many of the other films, especially New Hope and Return, where both and both films end with the climactic battle of taking down a Death Star. But not having a Death Star, I think, is a strength to this movie and sets it apart in a big way. They know that it's the second act. Yeah. You know, even though there's a three-act structure in this film, like most stories and most films, it is the second act of a trilogy. It doesn't have the same climax as the first one or the third one had. But I think that's why it has so much heart, like you said. It's more about the character development and their relationships more than anything. And that's why I think it's so special. I think that's why people love it so much. This is like really the connective tissue of the original trilogy. This is why the third one's so special. Obviously, you can't have Empire without A New Hope. But this one really brings the the emotionality to the film and the stories and the characters. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, I prefer this kind of third act. It's because it's like just, just Vader and Luke. That it's special, you know. It's it, I think it's really, really fantastic. And a great tidbit about Palpatine, because Palpatine we don't see in the in the flesh until Return, and then it's just like a whole another element that's just fantastic once we see him. But the initial role of Palpatine was actually performed by someone else, a different actor. Uh, it was an, actually an older actress, and what they did was they covered her in a ton of prosthetics. And um, they also superimposed the eyes of, I believe, a chimpanzee over her eyes in the in the hologram. And completely different actor. And that was the original Emperor Palpatine that people, audiences saw in theaters. And then when, when Lucas cast Ian, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, the actor who plays uh, uh, Vader, uh, the Emperor. He's played at the Emperor physically in all the iterations of the character. Uh, he loved the performance so much that he had this actor redo the scenes for Empire and digitally put them into the footage of Empire. So the original, the original cut of Empire had a different actor playing Palpatine. Ian McDermott, McDermott is the they, actor who you. does Palpatine now. You're right. And this movie, when you when you watch it, and it's similar to The Two Towers in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where it's not a conclusion. There are some big events that happen in the third act of the film, but overall it's not the same kind of climax that the first one or the third one has. But it's just a continuation of the story, moving the characters forward. More emotional points of the film happen in development for important characters. Like you could say the development of Gollum is one of the most important parts of the two towers going into the third film. Just like the development of Palpatine and Vader are really important going into the third one. Taking well. down Sauron. Saruman, yeah. I mean. So taking taking over Isengard. And what, but what makes it different from Lord of the Rings is I think all the Lord of the Rings movies are amazing. But if I was going to have to rank them, I would put two towers last. But that's not saying it's in anything, any way, shape, or form that I have anything against it because I, I think it's a perfect movie. But I just think that Fellowship and uh, Return are just amazing. Whereas this trilogy, I think it's like the second one, I think in a lot of ways, is probably the best out of the three. 
which is different. It from probably is. Yeah, I would say it's probably the best, but I still think Return's my favorite. And even, New Hope's great. Return as well. is a lot of fun because Return brought the humor back and the fun back. And Luke's a Jedi Master. Yeah. Luke's Luke just showing up as a Jedi Master is like, oh my god, this is so cool. But then you have it's so playful with the Ewoks and and those sequences on that planet are, are really fantastic. I love the Ewoks; they're so fun. Yeah. If you had to pick a trilogy, Desert Island, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Or are you going Star Wars original trilogy? Lord of the Rings. Yes, sir. Not, I don't even have to think We about love it. Star Wars, but Lord yeah. of the Rings is just special. Three perfect special movies. To me. Special to they me. They really are. Yeah. But there, yeah. that doesn't, there's nothing against Star Wars. You know, Star so Wars. So you hate Star Wars is I, what you're saying? So much. You think Star Wars is trash? So much. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here. It's, I'm it's on record forever. Yeah, it's in there. <laughs> Please insert sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. We love Star Wars. That's why we're talking about it for the seventeenth time on the show. Yeah, doing individual it's episodes. Be a lot of one. episodes. This was a lot of fun doing this one. So, do you have any yeah. anything else to add? No, I just think uh, we're gonna watch Return again. Uh, I haven't seen Return as many times as I've seen the other, but I have we seen watch it a lot. tonight. Yeah, why not watch it tonight? Yeah, so, but uh, at the moment, I think Empire is my favorite, especially after watching it again. But uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Return. I'm looking forward to talking more about the rest of the franchise and how it ends uh, this is i think one of the greatest adventure sci-fi films ever made and in that will ever be made and uh, it's going to be hard to ever make things like this again even with all the technology that we have nowadays obviously filmmaking has advanced in such amazing ways but still it's all about the story and all about the characters and that's what makes this one special and i love revisiting trilogies franchises big popular ones that are decades old over and over again because i always have a different perspective of of life but also a different perspective when i watch them in different feelings afterwards when they're over i see things that i didn't never notice before even if i've seen it 15 times so i love revisiting the star wars trilogy the original so much it's a, it's a lot of fun it's a blast i i have different perspectives and ideas about it than the first time we covered the original trilogy, which was like a year and a half ago. So it's always great to revisit these. These are timeless. They're endless, re endlessly rewatchable. We'll be watching these in 50 years for sure. Hopefully we're still on this earth, me and Anthony, because we'll be pretty old men. We'll be 82. We'll be around. We'll be alive. We'll be alive. Dude, I, I'll still it, be running. You know how much water I drink? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the water, man. Water's important, man. We'll watch these in 50 years. We'll yeah. be on episode 17,000 of the show. We will be collectors anymore. We'll be comparing the original trilogy to the the 70, 78th movie of the Star Wars franchise and seeing which ones are the best. But again, in fifty years, these will still be watched and loved as much as they are today, as much as they were in the seventies and eighties, because they are iconic, legendary films, some of the best in American cinema history, science fiction, fantasy lore, epic, awesome. one of the biggest, probably the biggest fan base in. The, ever in the planet yeah. in the history of entertainment for sure is star wars oh yeah 100 percent. well said man thanks well, man well appreciate it well thanks everyone for tuning into our episode on star wars episode 5 the empire strikes back stay tuned for more next week we have return of the jedi on monday as well as last week if you didn't if you missed it we did a new hope so stay tuned for those and check them out if you haven't seen them yet be sure to become a patron at patreon.com slash raiders of the lost podcast take care may the force be with you all this episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Luke Exelston, Tyler McFly, Darren Singleton, Anthony DeMeo, John A. Graz, Becca Keene, Cody Moen, Calvin Cam, and Lauren Smertz. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.